Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. It is my distinct pleasure and privilege to be joined on the podcast today by Dr. Mark Laberton. Mark Laberton was named the fifth president of Fuller Seminary in 2013 after four years of being Fuller's Lloyd John Ogilvie Associate Professor of Preaching and Director of the Ogilvie Institute of Preaching and before that being in pastoral ministry for around about 30 years, 16 of those years as the senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley, California. I met Mark as my professor at Fuller Seminary in a preaching class that he let me audit, <laughs> just sort of hang around in, um, which was a doctoral class, which I was not doing my doctoral work there, but uh, was doing uh, an MA actually there. And, uh, and since then, Mark has been a dear friend, um, has been someone I am happy and relieved to be able to say, okay, well, there are some evangelical leaders that, <laughs> that, I, that I genuinely admire, respect, and have been blessed uh, by and not just frustrated with. Um, Mark is, is a person who is coming from the church, and in that way, um, it also establishes for me a level of trust with ordinary people and the life of the church, not just the life of a seminary or an institution or academy. Um, Mark's story is an interesting one, which we will get into, I hope, uh, in a matter of moments. But Mark, just thank you so much for taking the time to be with us well, today. Thank you so much, David. It's really, really fun to be able to have this conversation with you. I do want to say that when we met, yes, I was in that role, but you were the, the hoodied uh, <laughs> student doing an MA, auditing a doctoral seminar. And um, I just remember that you were not only the, the hooded student, but you were the one who asked some of the brightest possible questions. And I just uh, immediately thought, who is this? And what is this person up to? And it's just been a, a pure joy and honor to to follow you and to know what's happening. So, and besides, you have gorgeous children. So I do <laughs> about that. And a wife who is a wonderful artist. So yes. oh, that's a pretty amazing combination of things. Oh, I, am, I am richly blessed. I'm the George Bailey of pastors. Yes, so yes. I'm richly, <laughs> richly blessed. Uh, Mark, one of the great things um, for me about your story, not only that you pastored in a, in a sort of... Um, very high level secular context, which also is something near and dear to my heart, having done a lot of my work and training in the secular academy and amongst bright, ethically minded, but usually non-believing people. Um, I appreciated that so much about your pastoral background, but just about your story, how you came to know the Lord was always something that to me gave you a vantage point that some of us uh, who grew up maybe in the church, uh, just didn't have access to. Could you start us there by just telling us, how did you come to know the Lord? How, how did you grow up in the world? And how did that, how did that transpire that you came to, to walk with Jesus? Yeah, thank you, David. It, it is a story that I'm extremely grateful for. Uh, I grew up in a very close, loving family. Um, however, my parents, and particularly my dad, was really uh, the personification of a religious skeptic. And 
uh, I've jokingly said he saved certain neck veins for the discussion of religion because <laughs> there were few things in the world that he most wanted that he more wanted his two sons to avoid than anything to do with religion or religious devotion. So at the time that I was um, entering college, I started reading the New Testament and the story begins to unfold in the convergence of these two things. My dad's main argument against faith was that what religious people do, uh, particularly Christian religious people, is that they take great things and make them very small. And it was really a critique that he could quite impassionedly express in relationship to science, the arts, um, and so forth, but also in relationship to uh, just the ordinary exchanges of life. And in many ways, I would have to say, I, I wish I could say now 30 years on from the time that I was first serving as a pastor, that that's not true of Christian people. But I would have to say, uh, even in an urbane setting like Berkeley, there is a proclivity toward smallness far too often. And uh, whether you're discussing the universe and you reduce it all to a question of simply a debate around origins or whether you are thinking about the mystery and wonder of being human and it gets reduced to moral agency as the only thing that really matters in human life. Those would be examples of my father who was an inventor and a scientist who had just a great imagination and uh, incredible curiosity about the world. Uh, so he naturally, out of that experience and conviction, wanted his sons to avoid it. So I started reading the New Testament, um, thinking I would find something quite different. And the first thing that shocked me as I started reading the Gospels was how much Jesus and my dad had in common, mm. that uh, Jesus' critique was not so unlike uh, my dad's. And then I was surprised to discover that the antidote that Jesus offered to this small making was this thing that he referred to as the kingdom of God which was, in my understanding, the thing that began to crack open the universe. If you want to understand the enormity and vastness and largesse and capaciousness of reality, uh, enter the kingdom of God and you will enter into the imagination and love and mercy and justice of God, which redefines everything. So instead of religion being something that is intrinsically small-making, uh, it's intrinsically the opposite, if we mean by that, the kingdom of God is proclaimed and taught by Jesus. Mm. But if, if we're meaning religious practice, then it's in religious practices that a lot of small making does occur. And so I've always felt my, my dad's um, words to me about this were very, very significant. Let me just extend this just a little bit more. One of the things that happened uh, was that my mom, who had been a, a quiet and latently developing uh, Christian, found, she found her faith was being awakened by my conversion as she started to attend a church. She meets a pastor. She tells the pastor that her, past, her son has had some kind of religious experience. And then <laughs> uh, he says, well, then I'd like to come and call on him. So on an otherwise perfectly wonderful spring day, up rolls uh, this person who I'd not met, who was my first formal discussion with any, um, as a professional believer. Mm -hmm. uh, and he and I chatted for a few minutes awkwardly. And then he said, well, I should tell you that I've come for three reasons. The first is that your mom told me that you had uh, some kind of religious uh, experience. Secondly, uh, that might mean you're going to become a pastor. <laughs> now, this was not even wildly, <laughs> faintly on my horizon. Um, and thirdly, he said, and if you do become a pastor, then I want to make sure that you know which denomination has the best pension plan. 
So that's old school. <laughs> that was that was old school. So um, that night at dinner, I told my parents uh, what had happened, and my mom was horrified. And my my dad was very a very gentle spirited guy, and he was quiet for a little while. And then he said, "Now, you do realize this is exactly where this is all going." I mean, I know that you think what's happened is that you're getting to know the God of the universe, but here's this first religious person that came to talk to you about that. And all he really had to offer you was a job with a potential pension plan and you better get a good one. Wow. Now I've thought often that that conversation with that pastor and that conversation with my dad at dinner was one of the most important days of my whole life because uh, what was being teed up was evidence of exactly what dad had been saying for all these years and, and was exactly the danger that plagues Christianity specifically, I think at the moment, evangelicalism and is the inverse of what I would understand to be the character of what the kingdom of God is about. And because I can testify so readily in my own self and in the lives of others that I've known that we are prone to small making and, um, to, to pettiness and so forth. And I think, I think that established for me a line of demarcation that said, okay, go, go forth in your discipleship, but remember that one of the lions at the door is the, the lion of just reductionism yeah. uh, that will serve my interests and have nothing to do with the character and majesty and greatness of God. Did you ever read, uh, is it Harold Fredrickson's The Damnation of Theron Ware? Yes, I have read that. Yeah, <laughs> so, amazing. Yeah, that's kind of what that book was. It is. It uh, is. It, it was, and I got I got a hold of that. Uh, my pastor was the only other person I've ever even heard of who had read it. Um, thank God. Um, but when I read that, and I think I was maybe at the end of my time at Fuller, or or just shortly after that, or something. Yes. Um, it was like that. It was like okay, whatever else. <laughs> Whatever right. else you do, watch out for these three or four ways in which this story always goes wrong. Yes. Uh, watch yes. out for the temptation to think this much of yourself. Watch out for the yes. temptation to professionalize yourself and look for the stable pastoral job in the hills or wherever, right. the idyllic setting. I talked to someone who was in a ministry at um, Yale Divinity School, and and she was telling me her and her husband um, ran, I think it's called the Rivendell Institute. There was like a, it was like oh, right. a, uh -huh. a minister to young couples who were there doing MDivs, things like this. Yes. And yes. she confided in me at one point that the hardest thing about their ministry was how when they would see oftentimes young men who were going to seminary there, um, they, the, they would begin to change in a way that was not gospel change but would change in a way that was, uh, oh, I'm starting to learn all these things and I'm starting to really understand the real things that really matter and everything. And it would put this strain on their marriage. And, and she said one of their major ministries was the breakdown of marriages at seminary, um, at the school. Right. Because then right. the husband would come back or maybe in the, in the reverse, the wife would come back and the spouse just had this sort of straightforward trust in Jesus walk with Jesus but now the spouse had this professional sophisticated historical critical whatever something about well you know you know what really is going on in the gospels is this that and the other thing 
And she said it was the most heartbreaking thing to discover much of their ministry mm. was going to be trying to keep marriages together because wow. of the vanity of mm-hmm. the spouse that went to seminary. I mean, and I, it was right. like, it was right. such a shocking but vivid example of, of things that, um, that I felt, you know, when I was reading that book or that I even experienced, you know, and saw um, the tensions at, at Fuller at my time just at, at a right. seminary, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. That, that there would be a form of small making, which is a form of me feeling like I know, like the, that the world and certainly the gospel and, and all of the things would somehow fit in my mind and my two years at school. Right. And, and now let me tell you, you know, why yes. it's wrong about, about yes. <laughs> Exactly. Well, this is one of the dangers of education period. And, and it comes in many different forms. I mean, having lived, in and around Berkeley for almost 30 years. Uh, believe me, it's a town filled with people like that. And they, we, whether Christians or not, there's a sense that education, knowledge, information can be intoxicating. And, and it uh, can be intoxicating in ways that are very subversive to life on many, many levels. And certainly when that all happens in the life of somebody who's studying the, theology or biblical studies or whatever it might be, it's um, particularly excruciating. So, yeah. Do you think, so, I mean, you, you came into Fuller at a time, you came first as this professor preaching, which is how I met you, um, you know, heading up the sort of this, this kind of venerable preaching department, this kind of institute. Um, you very quickly were not that, though. You very quickly, I mean, you know, at least from someone who had met you there, like a few years later, it felt like all of a sudden, right. you and I had been talking about how, oh, yeah, you know, this is a little tough. I'm kind of flying down to teach a class here and there. And, you know, my kids are kind of, you know, my family's kind of up, you know, in the Bay. And I'm not sure how this is going to work out. <laughs> and then at some point, the next thing I see is Mark Laberton appointed for seminary president. I'm like, oh, okay, well, either he got a private jet or... <laughs> <laughs> or he's moving. <laughs> but very quickly, very quickly, you went from church to to a role that was particularly related to the fact that you had been a preacher for some decades, um, to being what what is remarkable to me, only the fifth president of Fuller Seminary, which you know has yes. been around for what about seventy years now. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but all of a sudden you're in this role of leading um, one of the largest, most sort of notable, uh, certainly evangelical institutions, uh, probably say in the world, uh, you know, as recent as evangelicalism may be ultimately. Um, When you're suddenly in this role, you come into that role at a time in which, as you know very well, as sort of a someone who came to faith later in life, um, but you come to that role in a time of, of what would be categorically described as sort of crisis level <laughs> evangelicalism, right? Um, this is around 2013. Uh, this, and, and it's, almost, it's almost quaint to think of a crisis in 2013. <laughs> Indeed. The good old crises. Good old crises of 2013. Oh, for those days of yesteryear. <laughs> Uh, Halcyon days of 2013. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you come into a moment in which there are evident moral crises, evident anti-intellectual crises, evident all, all sorts of things that, that, that you were able to see clearly at that moment. Um, and then I think my assumption is some, somewhat as, a, as, a, as an outsider coming to faith a little bit later, probably saw 
with a bit more clarity or, or, or with ease in the sense that you didn't have a bunch of old dogs and old fights. Um, you, you hadn't been fighting that culture war because you didn't even know it was going on or you weren't interested <laughs> because you right. didn't, you were exactly. didn't grow up that way. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So you kind of get appointed as sort of the crisis president, right? Like here we go. It's the crisis president, right? Independence. Special Day. anointing. Yeah. You're on the podium, you know, the aliens are invading, you know, and we're going to, we're as <laughs> Mark Laverton, what are you going to do next? You know, um, it's only got <laughs> worse from there, Mark. So, <laughs> so you noticed, so, mm-hmm. Tell me about what it's like to be the president of Fuller Seminary at a time <laughs> in which the world is very much on fire. And yeah. evangelicalism, as we know, is almost a useless term. And, and I know debating the term is almost a useless task, but, um, but in which there really is no hyperbole left. Everything has been sort of exposed. All the foundations uh, that maybe we thought were solid, many of them have turned to sand. Um, anyone with eyes to see, which is not a lot of people, which is part of the problem, I think, but anyone with eyes to see, um, sees that we just don't have credibility. We don't have intellectual credibility. We certainly don't have moral credibility. Um, any day's headlines, including today's and yesterday's, for example, um, would remind us of, of that. Um, how do you jump into a job like this? I mean, could it have been easier to just be a senior pastor at First Pres Berkeley? <laughs> uh, yes. Oh, by, by far, it, it would have been. Yes. Uh, well, it is, a, it is an absorbing time completely and totally. And there's, it's like a five-alarm fire every day in every direction. And um, I remember when I interviewed to be the president, which I was not looking for, I was asked, several times to apply. This is not my idea. I did not wake up thinking at at some stage in my life, oh, I would love to be the president of Fuller Seminary. It's got a good pension, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It was a shock to me that this is the role. Um, But I remember when I was interviewing, um, I said, you know, I think that probably as a board, you would imagine that one of the major issues that Fuller will face in the next years is is its own response to the LGBT crisis. And certainly that is a very important thing that we need to uh, consider and reflect on. But I said, I actually think that the much deeper crisis is actually the, the moral, spiritual and theological crisis about evangelicalism's relationship to race in America. And I would bet that over the next 10 years, it's gonna be mostly about race, not actually mostly about other things. And, um, and I said that out of, just a deep personal conviction that that the intertwined relationship between the evangelical that were actually in some cases not only slave holding defenders but slave holders um, was deeply intertwined and almost invisible. White evangelicalism's connection to that narrative is really profound. I start there as a response to your question to say, um, not only has that manifested itself in the way that we're now seeing, but but it reflects this unreflected sense that we basically have a neutral faith. We're just affirming what we uh, believe. We're just teaching the Bible as though we're, we're context-free, prejudice-free, politics-free, which we've never been and which no one can be. And we are trying to be faithful to the scriptures. That's true. But we have to do so understanding and admitting that we are filled with all kinds of presuppositions that are based on our social location, our race, our gender, our perspective. And Fuller, I think, as an institution, has 
for a long time been more willing to honestly admit that. Now, having admitted that, have we admitted it about ourselves all the way to the core? And I think the answer to that is mixed. I think yes and no, right? It's very hard to see ourselves in our context. We tend to still always paint ourselves in a more neutral way. But it's just become, it became clear to me almost immediately that one of the big tasks of this season was to be intensely self-critical about our history, about our location, about, yes, all the great strengths and wonders that are remarkable in many, many ways about Fuller. And yet we haven't turned our best, self, our, our best critical tools on ourselves to really understand our own challenges. And that's theological, social, political, educational, technological, uh, theological, biblical, every, everything is, has to be put on the table. And it's not because uh, it's a task of abandonment at all. It's a task of clarification. And um, I recently posted a meme on Facebook that tried to offer a definition of evangelicalism. It, it simply said, evangel, the good news of God's love and justice in Jesus Christ, Icalism, other stuff, uh, <laughs> some good, some bad, but definitely not the evangel. Right. Give your life to the evangel, by all means, say yes. Give your life for the ickalism, just say no. Now, that little meme tries to compress, in a certain way, many of the other things that you were referring to, which is the, the larger landscape. And you know, our hope is never in the ickalism. It's right. only in the evangel. And we can't come to the evangel without bias or prejudice or assumptions, but the evangel itself is built to be, if it's, if it's received and active in our lives, the good news of Jesus Christ is built to be a constantly renewing, uh, self-corrective, um, God-correcting understanding of ourselves, our relationships with one another, our, our witness in life in the world, whatever our work or location might be. So let's by all means hold on relentlessly and, and primarily to the evangel. When I preached at my inauguration um, service, I said, uh, I did so based on Philippians 2, and I said, we have to make sure, like Paul does, that the evangel is the primary thing. And then let's make the primary thing the pervasive thing. So if it's primary, it's not just a confessional word. It's really a whole list of letting it actually be uh, the lightning rod, the, the measure, the provocation, the empowerment um, to do our work in light of the gospel, not just in light of the academy or in light of culture or in light of politics, and especially not in light of the ickalism of evangelicalism, which is just embedded in subcultures, not really an expression of the gospel itself. So I think what we've been trying to do, and, and this is a deep part of what Fuller is actually doing even now and continues to do, is to really do this self-examining work and then change the things that we think are really unfaithful and it, or inadequate or lame or distracting about what we're actually doing for the sake of that central task. As you know, David, um, no community in certain ways is more political than an academic community. And Fuller, like any academic community, can easily become um, turned in on its own inner life in a way that is actually not productive. It's just about academic politics, which around which there's a great deal of passion, 
and I think often it's because um, because we are not giving our real passions to the things that actually matter most. So let me just pause there and uh, see if you want yeah, to respond to that at all. I mean, a couple of things. It strikes me first, almost incredible uh, that you would have said that in your interview and then they would have hired you. <laughs> yes, yes. Because, I mean, at least, you know, historically, um, I'm assuming, and this might be totally unfair, um, but, you know, boards of venerable institutions that are largely white are, are usually older white guys um, who, I mean, let's be frank, may not think that's the issue, certainly wouldn't want a president who thought that was going to be the issue, or would be nervous that in making that the issue, aren't we just responding to what the culture is saying is the issue? Isn't, isn't, isn't Mark actually just playing into the identity politics obsession with et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to even be able for them to be able to hear that that was not just what you thought would be the issue moving forward in the culture, but that that's a central point of us almost symbolizing, um, not seeing ourselves historically and critically, the the deep sort of history of of Christianity in America, particularly and racism, um, just that they would be able to have parsed, <laughs> be willing to have parsed that, because I know from the outside, plenty of people had said, "Oh, Fuller's just woke, like Nike's woke, and everybody, you know, like that." It's 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 more like getting cultural points, and and it's a way of like um, rushing out to have a you know, hey, we're, we're right on the same page with you, witness, rather than digging deep into historical theology and the things the church right. is to be up to. And so it's, it's wonderful to hear sort of that you said that, the way you said that, um, because it does risk the outside saying, aren't you just following what the culture's agenda happens to be or what happens to be in an acceptable by the erudite sort of left intellectual class which Fuller wants to be more like and flee from the fundamentalist group on the other side that we don't want to be like. And, you know, I mean, like that, that, that you would try, that you would be willing to say, this is central to the moral integrity of what it means to live the evangel and has been one of the most glaringly missed things in the history of American Christianity. Um, and that they would have ears to hear that rather than the narratives I just spelled out about it being hijacked for some other read. Right. 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 That seems. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I was very, uh, I was very free about that because I was, uh, it, it is absolutely my, one of my most um, deeply held convictions. And, and I think it's a crisis of many different kinds. It's ultimately a gospel crisis. It's not a cultural crisis or a racial crisis, it's a gospel crisis. And, um, and I think it it was surprising to me, but also uh, something that I thought, well, we have to lay all these cards on the table because if I am to be the president of Fuller, I, I can't smuggle this in later. They need to know that this is uh, this is how I'm seeing it on the front end. Right. And of course, this is long before many, many things that happen, have happened at Fuller, which have been very painful and challenging things to try to um, name and work through and the slowness of the process and academic change can often be very difficult uh, for me, but also difficult for um, students particularly and, and others. So yeah, I, I, I'm grateful for that. I think that our board has been a board, however, that 
that is a very learning oriented board as opposed to a presumptuous board. It's been a board that's been groomed really in a subculture of saying we must remain open and engaged and reflective about what's really happening and not just hold our presuppositions um, with grandiosity and, and piety, but let's actually let them do some work. And I think this was work that was not unfamiliar to the board, but it was work that I was clearly going to be leaning toward even harder. And so even this summer, we've spent time uh, reading several books together. We, uh, in, in, books around racism and, um, and white supremacy books and movies that we've watched. There was a really remarkable film made by one of our students about the brutal murder of his grandfather um, that was then in South Carolina, who was then, um, the whole thing was just completely buried in the press. He recovered this story, made a, a, a beautiful, remarkable documentary about the story with all the people that are still alive and the way that it had been handled by the police, the way it had been handled by the church, the way it had been handled by family and all of that. Um, it's a great film called Open Wounds by Phil Allen. And um, it's just, it was a, so we've done a lot of these things and we are going to continue to do these things. Uh, and, and, and our moment right now, uh, it has to center Fuller in a way that more fundamentally embraces uh, a changed social culture that is not just representatively diverse, but is actually intrinsically diverse and um, essentially diverse. Not because of uh, diversity being an idol, but because uh, I don't know what else Ephesians 2 means about a new humanity. If it's not an unexpected, unlike community who find each other because of Jesus Christ. So if that's the mission to which people who graduate from Fuller are going to go out and nurture, then how can Fuller not give itself to, with devotion and passion to that uh, really fundamental concern? Yeah. And, you know, it, it strikes me that, so you, you've obviously made this push to address the historic issues with race in, in the Christian church, especially the evangelical church. It's been much appreciated, even though, as I say, as anything else, it, it can be misread or co-opted, sure. I'd say, yeah. that it's too narrow. Yeah. Um, Fuller's mission is, is unbelievably broad, right? I mean, right. global leaders, king right. vocations can mean anything, right? I mean, right. I mean, it can mean anything good, <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, one of the challenges in a time in which people are wondering, you know, seminary is expensive, it's expensive to exist. Fuller had a, a big plan to move that is not happening. People are trying in college land. I know several colleges that are closing down. The right. entire landscape of, let's just say, graduate education, um, which sometimes people forget seminary is meant to be graduate level education, yes. <laughs> not just a nice place for Christians who are bored after college. Or yes, something. yes, um, yes. But, but that this whole landscape is being rethought, reimagined. I've seen many seminaries try to go more uh, focused on the church. Look, right. the seminary was always about training pastors to do the work of local ministry in the church. Fuller has not gone that direction. It's included that, but it's maintained, even in this moment, as I see it at least, this hugely broad vision, even at a time when resources maybe enrollments, I'm not privy to all that stuff, um, is narrowing. So the decision to sort of maintain that breadth of school of psychology, of, of, of these different, this landscape of multiple vocations, 
Um, which when I was there, one of the things that was so surprising to me, and I did have to wrestle with it a little bit, I'd say one out of every five or six like students I knew were even considering pastoral vocation. Mm-hmm. It, it was like, it was, it, it was like, it was just, it was, oh, well, we'll see, you know, and, and part of that was like, oh, well, that's really expansive. That's cool. It brought like lots of different people there, more artists and more kind of, you know, imaginatively oriented people that I really appreciated. Um, but part of me, and I think I even voiced this to you when you were the professor of preaching was I didn't, I just didn't know a lot of people who were like, I'm here to be trained to be a good pastor. It was almost like the pastoral thing um, was too small. You know, it was like um, local ministry at a small church, which most churches are, or whatever it might be, um, was not kingdom vision, global leadership, right? The, the bigness of, of, a, of a bracing vision of what, you know, even Fuller was, was standing for. Um, how, do you, how do you try to navigate the institutional life of Fuller, having not chosen to go narrow in its focus on training pastors for the church, for local ministry, um, not pivoting in that direction, which I've seen work for a couple institutions recently that has given clarity and is given like, okay, that's what we're up to. If you want that, this is a place for that, right? Fuller is maintaining that breadth. Um, is it at, at risk to it being too diffused in you know, build a bear seminary education, whatever you're interested in, we'll find a way to make make it work. Um, I mean, like, (laughs) I know you've had to make some serious cuts, but the mission has maintained the bigness of the language. Um, So how did, how do you negotiate that? Right. Well, uh, wonderfully, you've stuck your finger in one of the many light sockets that are uh, (laughs) right now. So, um, let me say, tell you what our, our current um, phrase is that's describing our understanding of our mission, because I think it helps to unpack uh, our response to what you're rightly uh, and correctly describing. So what we're saying that Fuller offers is an indispensable formational education for diverse Christian leaders everywhere. Um, and I, I think the issue of, um, of narrowness would be hard for the for the subculture and the character of Fuller, because I think in our best moments, we are and have been and will be an institution with a, with a global vision and not one that is uh, small, not global uh, in, as in globalized, like we're trying to take over the world uh, and McDonaldize or Fullerize. The, the world. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but in the sense that we don't want to lose track of the fact that God's vision is deeply, intimately, profoundly personal and deeply and profoundly expansive in, in its reach and its implications of all dimensions of life, all parts of, of the world, all conditions and sociologies, uh, including also concerns for the universe itself and for the planet that we live on. So it would be hard to reduce that in our vision, because I think we would feel that that's really a reduction of the gospel. And, um, and that can, I can say more about that, but, but as a result, what we have to tighten is not that vision, but the discipline to accomplish that vision in a, in a more intentional way. So the, the leading word in that sentence I just said was indispensable. Mm -hmm. Um, The indispensability has to be measured by its value to students 
then by its value to the places that they might end up working. And then most specifically, by the value that it has to the people that they're going to actually serve. So the best litmus test of whether we're doing the right job is not just impact on students or that they get a job, uh, which is never to be presumed, uh, but they actually are able to bring indispensable resources uh, and character formation and personal and spiritual disciplines and uh, biblical and theological and psychological insights into people's lives, wherever it is that they're going to serve. And, and I think in that way, we have to be more a, a combination, as I've been saying, of, of being a community of scholars and practitioners. Um, not because Fuller has an interest probably in becoming what some schools are choosing to do, which is to become really like a training center where it's, it's not about knowledge, it's about skills. Right. And it's, it's principally about the ability to carry out certain tasks. Right. Um, I think our vision is that, no, we still want to do serious uh, scholarly work, but we also must discipline ourselves to be doing it toward the sake of a, of a formation process that is for diverse, not, not all homogeneous, not like one another, particularly an expression of the new humanity, Ephesians 2, um, but also diverse Christian leaders, people of influence, many of whom will be pastors. Um, according to a study we did last year, 85% of our graduates are employed in the work to which they had come to Fuller to be better prepared. That's, that was their own self-description. So that was uh, very encouraging. Yeah. Um, and then diverse Christian leaders everywhere because Fuller for 20 years has been involved uh, intensely in online education. And we've always had a significant number of international students that come to our Pasadena campus. But now as online education opens up so many new horizons, it's, it's not just everywhere as in the far reaches from a place like Pasadena, but in really close by, but unreached places. So for example, um, we're starting a marriage and family therapy program that really is targeted in many ways for South Central underserved populations within the core of LA itself. Mm. So in that way, uh, it, it's an attempt to try to say, really, we want to dial in, but we want to dial in around our expertise, but our expertise, if it does its work, will ultimately be a soul and mind expanding expertise, not just a, a very particular uh, skill or training oriented approach. I really appreciate that. And in, in as much as, um, you know, as Marsden has, has described in the, in the history of Fuller, you know, Fuller is more or less, as I understand it, established as a response, not to a lack of training or skills in, in the land of ministry or pastoral ministry, but um, an anti-intellectualism, a, a lack of credibility uh, of intellectual engagement with the world um, at the level of scholarship, at the level of, right, that this is sort of in the wake of the Scopes monkey trial, that, the, that there is this, this crisis in the, in the early part of the 20th century um, of evangelicalism, uh, trying to figure out what it means to be what it is, and that Fuller is established by at least that, that early group, it seems precisely to, to restore and promote a form of credibility and witness in the world that is broad at the level of engagement of scholarship 
rather than specifically focused on skills and training for, for ministry that it is, I mean, seminary may almost be like a, a mislabel, right? I mean, it's, it's a, it's a graduate school. It's a, it's a graduate school that's meant to be engaged in scholarship of as high an order as is found wherever you should look um, in an attempt to give sort of that evangelical or neo-evangelical uh, moment of credibility and witness that is, has a longer vision of being in this culture and in this world for the sake of the gospel. Um, yeah. How do you, for, for all the things that you and I have even talked about already, but are sort of daily maybe dispirited by the loss, I mean, categorically loss of credibility um, because of the political um, hijacking, because of the moral compromise, because of the blatant compromise for the sake of political power, because of all the things that that has uh, compromised the witness. And I'm just saying to our neighbors, right? I know it's hard for us to think outside of ourselves sometimes, but if asking a person like your father, if we, if we were to be able to talk to him in a moment like this, um, he would say probably much what grad students at UCI that I am friends with would say, you never speak up when it's so unbelievably obvious. You only speak up when it is a minute point of metaphysics or a minute point of someone else's problem. Um, you, you, you always get the, the big thing wrong. <laughs> and, and where is like the thing we're all supposed to be known for? Where is the love part? And, I mean, like the most basic reads, but like, um, you know, we're still thought to be anti-science, we're still thought to be, you know, anti, you know, neighbor, I mean, still thought to be anti all the things. Um, so, so if, if Fuller exists in part um, to try to chart a path to restoring credibility um, in evangelicalism, um, do you think that that project is, is at an end and needs to be reborn differently? Do you think... I mean, how many more points can we, can we give away as far as the credibility goes? I don't think we have much to work with. What do you think it would even look like uh, for Fuller to, I understand like your, your engagement with the issue of race goes some of that distance to say, hey, here's an obvious thing that anybody outside would have noticed that we have gotten hugely wrong forever. Um, you know, that, that is, that's a wonderfully clear right. Um, addressing of a moral compromise at the level of betraying the gospel that we have accommodated for years, uh, centuries. Um, so, I, so that might go some way um, of establishing some long-term credibility. But, but in these other in these other arenas, um, do you think it's time to start something new? Do you think do you think this project of trying to revive the corpse? Um, is, is, is no longer the best way to, to spend energy. Where do you, and I know, I don't know how you, how freely you can speak to, to, to any of these things um, in, in your, in your roles, but, um, but, you know, I, I read last night and I'm sorry to dominate for this moment, but I read last night the statement you gave at the closed door meeting of evangelicals at Wheaton college in 2018. I'm going to post it when, when this podcast is posted, I'm going to attach this. It's going to be there for anybody who wants to see. Um, it was unbelievably clear. It was, it was one of the few statements of any evangelical leader that I 
could nod, you know, vigorously all the way through and say, thank God. Yes, of course. Thank God. Yes, of course. Um, and yet what, and maybe this is from the outside and, and I'm, I'm missing it. And yet the most frustrating thing is that a statement like that could be made with all that clarity, with all that, I mean, the willingness to say that evangelicalism has violated its own moral and spiritual integrity, full stop. And you pulled no punches. You, you laid it out exactly as you saw it, exactly as many of us had been feeling it. You, as you typically do, put clear and focused language to it. And two years on, it feels like the needle has, has not moved. It feels like because we are so leaderless in our design of non-hierarchical Protestantism, that even these kinds of wonderful, clear manifestos of what we could be pulled forward into repentance and renewal by, you know, maybe it affected, you know, people who already knew you and loved you as, as I do, or the Fuller community that really appreciated their president being clear about something, you know, but like, I think that's been one of the hardest things for me is to say when a, a voice emerges, you know, we don't have Stott anymore. We don't have Packer anymore. We don't have Peterson anymore. We don't have any of the older guard that actually was fighting the good fight um, and seeing with clarity the importance of the gospel and not all the other ickalisms. Um, mm -hmm. What do, give me, some, I don't, you don't have to give me anything false, but like, when I see that, and I see that that was two years ago, and it, and it could or should be read out loud from any evangelical institutional, you know, pulpit um, every day since then, um, and would still be increasingly and more and more true, what do we do when, when that doesn't appear to move the needle? Well, that's a gargantuan set of I'm questions, sorry, I'm um, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm eager to jump in, but I, before I do that, I want to just make note of something, which is that um, the very reason that when Fuller is at its best, it, it cultivates, and I'm now going to embarrass you, it cultivates or contributes to the cultivation of people like you, David. So what you've just demonstrated in that last uh, long paragraph um, <laughs> is, is really all of the markers, right, of saying, I mean, this is partly why when, when I said you were the hoodied uh, student in the graduate seminar, uh, auditing it, but you also asked some of the most intelligent questions. Um, that is part of the reason why I particularly have latched onto you ever since, because I feel like, yes, 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 a thousand yeses. David Woods is the person that we need to, uh, that brings these things together. And you do it, I think, in a quite remarkable way. It's certainly in a way that is reflective of my understanding of the evangel, but also in a way that's very reflective of, of a person that's wrestling in the terrain that you wrestle in, which is both partly the academic uh, universe that you've occupied uh, and not just occupied, but you've occupied in departments that are particularly not interested in faith, <laughs> uh, at least in the, uh, in the classic sense, maybe they were, but in the more contemporary sense, they tend to fight in an interesting heuristic conversation, but less, um, otherwise. So uh, for those of you who listen regularly to the podcast or are part of David's church, I just want to say, don't miss any of this action. So thank you for all that you're doing. Um, yeah, I, well, I do find it, um, the decentered 
character of evangelicalism that has no leverage, no hierarchy, as you're saying, no place to turn, no voice, no structure that gives it clarity, that gives any voice more authority. It's really just driven by popularity and popularity is currently being driven by social media and social media is really driven by, you know, technological dynasties that in one way or another uh, promote and, and feed um, that, that pipeline. That is not really in the character of an educational institution, but, but regardless of that, it's not really in a way in the character of, of Jesus, if you want to just be very uh, specific about it. It's, that's, that's just really not the modality that matters to God. Jesus did not come suffer, live, and, uh, live, suffer, and die, and rise again for the sake of social media. He did it because of real people in real places in real times. Um, and, and I think this is where, I, I'm not sure whether evangelicalism has a future. I edited a book of essays a few years ago that was called Still Evangelical? Question mark. And in my opening essay, I said, uh, I tried to give us a sense of the scope and the landscape of evangelicalism. But I also said, you know, I'm not sure that the real question is still evangelical. It's, are we yet evangelical? And the reason I put it that way was to say, are we yet in any way people that could be given the honor of being identified with the evangel? Um, is that really, is that actually our character, our action? Are we yet evangelical? That feels like a very productive question to me. It flips it around. It's not a treasure trove to be held or prize to believe that we've won and everyone else has lost. That's, those are all the worst sides of evangelicalism. But a yet evangelicalism um, yearns for a sense of conformity to Christ in private and public spaces that seeks to do it personally and institutionally, that seeks to do, sees, uh, sees the opportunity to be light and salt in culture as an act of love and justice and mercy, not condemnation and judgment and phobias of various kinds. So when we have literally the cart in the completely wrong position, then it's, it's bound to turn out as it has so tragically turned out. So is it recoverable? Well, I don't, I don't know. This is where the ickleism, I think, is just so problematic. Whatever the future is, it will be defined and has to be held centrally to be oriented to the evangel. So part of the reason that I, I am recently using the evangel prominently in a lot of things that I'm saying and writing is a way of saying, of giving an echo to something called evangelicalism. But I'm also wanting to hold on really to the main thing, which is the evangel. It's not the entailments that have ended up in a subcultural format turned out to be something radically different. I think that the second thing is, you're right that when Fuller was established that it was an attempt to try to carve a third way between liberalism and fundamentalism. Unfortunately, in the 80s, it was really, I think, principally because of the press, but participated in by a lot of fundamentalist pastors and leaders, that evangelicalism became the great watchword that was adopted and fundamentalism has really fallen by the way. And a great deal of what we're implicitly talking about here is not what I would have said historically you would even think of calling evangelicalism. You would just simply call it fundamentalism. Right. But as fundamentalism fell into such disfavor, not unlike exactly the road that evangelicalism is now taking, um, 
evangelicalism, in other words, got, got swamped by the way that the press and other voices turned evangelicalism into fundamentalism. And then it's the fundamentalism that is, of course, driving everyone crazy. The evangelicalism that Fuller was trying to represent and other institutions like it was to try to say it is not evangelical. It's orthodox, but it's not fundamentalist, fundamentalistic. And on the other hand, it is not liberal, at least if liberal means an abandonment of orthodoxy. But it does welcome self-critique, deep scholarly self-critique and academic critique. But that's really different than either an abandonment to a certain kind of academic liberalism or abandonment to a certain kind of fundamentalism, neither of which uh, was the part of what evangelicalism at its best was trying to do. Now, even at its best, it still wasn't self-critical enough. So, uh, you know, when Fuller was founded in 47, it, it was not intensely self-critical. It was critical of these other movements that it wanted to avoid. Right. Oh, that it had been uh, rigidly, rigorously, I mean, self-critical about its own social location and its own, but that, that was not the period. I mean, 1947 was the, it was in the middle, late 40s and 50s that there was this explosion of so-called evangelical ministry. So there was in the development world, people, uh, organizations like World Vision, for example, or whether it was in the theological world like Fuller, or whether it was in the parachurch movements like InterVarsity, Young Life, Campus Crusade, all of those came into existence largely out of the same vortex that, yes, as you say, was a response to the Scopes trial. It was a response to a, a kind of um, rising Americanism that by the end of World War II had really reached a, a, an extraordinary pitch. And, you know, when I was a pastor in Berkeley, the, the most significant period of growth in the Berkeley church happened from 1947 uh, sorry, it happened from 19, uh, let me get this right. It happened from 19, um, yes, 1947 to 1960. And it was in that period that hundreds and hundreds of soldiers returning uh, from war, A, came back to Cal, finished their degrees, were converted at the First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley in about an eight-year period over 700 people went into so-called, quote, full-time Christian service out of the life of that church. Wow. It was an unbelievable period. Bob Munger was the pastor during that time. And it was just one of the most um, remarkable expressions. But it was still, looking back on it with all due respect, it was both gospel-centric but American culturally um, shaped in ways that I think were not apparent. That same thing is true of all of us endlessly every day. Um, we're endlessly being shaped more by our environment. I mean, I often have observed that it feels like uh, we're caught in a circumstance where really primarily we live our sociology uh, and we baptize it with some Christian gospel. Um, that is always anyone's uh, challenge. So yeah, I think all the issues that you're describing so well are, are exactly the challenge. And um, I do, I do wish that the content of that talk that I gave at Wheaton um, was internalized. I, I have to say, even in that gathering, it was clear that there were prominent evangelical leaders who were very uncomfortable with things I was saying, which was fine by me. 
but I'm just saying I could, I could feel in the room the sense of anxiety about donors, anxiety about a certain kind of cultural location, anxiety about whether people would uh, be willing to, to give up some of the things that guard their protected life. Mm-hmm. You told me once that you read Shakespeare's King Lear every year. Yes. And, you know, King Lear is a, is a play about, about lack. It's a play about divestment, about exposure. Exactly. Um, it's a play about exile. It's uh, right. m- much of that language you've used to describe the church in these years as, as an exilic church. Right. Um, what, what Lear is also about, maybe because it's about those things, is about forms of judgment. Uh, judgment on the use of power, judgment on the professions of love, even amongst the family. Um, describing the church as a church in exile, biblically also means exile never happens by accident. Right. It is, it is consigned as an act of judgment right. by the Lord. It comes from God, not from Nebuchadnezzar as right, well. Exactly. That God uses exile to judge to 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 bring low um, what had been vaunted. Um, I think we've touched on ways or or reasons we could see our own um, church uh, needing to be sifted and judged. Um, it is weird to try to lead during a time of divestment. It is weird, I would imagine, to try to run an institution knowing that one of the things the Lord is trying to teach us in this time is powerlessness, is a lack of being able to move the needle by our sheer will or even very good, clear ideas. Um, The humility that that Lear faces, let's say, on the heath in the storm, um, that moment when he is crying out and wondering why the gods in his realm, which is sort of a pre-Christian pagan um, imaginary, why the gods would not be able to, to cover his, his bare naked body. Um, there's that famous line by Albany that if, if the heavens do not send those spirits down, that mankind will, will prey upon itself like monsters of the deep. Um, it's difficult to look around at American culture and not see connections to Lear and not see connections to this sort of judgment or this sort of chaos. Um, I wrote on Lear when I was in grad school and described it as the most unexpected romance in which in Shakespeare's clearly most bleak and most devastating tragedy, there is nonetheless the smallest chink of light in, for me, in the figure of, of Edgar. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Edgar meets Lear on the heath. Edgar is babbling like someone escaped from the Bedlam beggar's prison, the, the lunatic asylum, the hill right. over. Um, he's babbling, and it's not clear if it's a performance or if he's lost his mind or, or where he is at in his sort of insensate way, but his, his vulnerability and his sort of, um, his sort of mere man-ness 
is one of the only things that calls out Lear's humanity. Right. That calls out Lear's compassion. Um, he, he starts to plead with the gods for, for, for Edgar that they would cover. He would be able to cover his body. He starts to take off his own clothes yes. uh, to cover Edgar. And, and in a moment like this, in which it is really easy to see the dark and the heat, mm-hmm. it's easy to see um, the loss of power and how bad probably both you and I are at, at leading without power <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, or being asked to, to lead and truly trust that the spirit could bring the most unexpected romance out of a situation that we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you see um, the hope, even if it's fumbling and babbling like Edgar uh, in that moment, in that central moment on the Heath, where do you see, and I know you see it in students of Fuller, and I know, I'm, I'm sure you see it in faculty that are at Fuller and faculty you've been able to bring there to broaden right. the, the, the world Christian perspective. Um, where else do you see it? Do you see it in, in your local church? Do you, see, do you see something more that we could see with you um, that would give a, a little more of that hope than maybe my disposition is inclined to sometimes? <laughs> Well, I, uh, I, I think that's another part of our connectedness. But um, yeah, I, I, I completely concur that Lear, this is a Lear moment. And um, it would be hard to find any single piece of literature that does any better job of expositing the moment that we're living in. And, um, and the utter brokenness of, of our interior existence, as well as our public relationships, uh, and our familiar relationships is is the backdrop and the theme, uh, the set of themes that are wending their way through the whole of that remarkable play. Um, and and so yes, I, I think that is actually very much the right place to start. Um, you know, I've I've often said that my parents raised me to enter a room listening, not speaking. And um, I think that this is a season where where I do think there is just a great deal of very intentional laying down of power for the sake of just acute listening, um, even to things that we think we've heard before um, or that we think we understand. Um, I, this is where I think uh, some of the deepest kinds of ordinary humility can be expressed, not the assertion of a viewpoint, but uh, the capacity to actually enter meaningfully into and empathetic listening. I want to hear and understand the other person's story. Um, and, you know, after that article that you mentioned uh, came out and it got some attention in various places, uh, I started getting letters from various people who had written in response to it. And, and some of them were people who were claiming that what I was saying was really an abandonment of the gospel. So uh, I wrote back to them and I said, um, you know, can you tell me more about why you think it's an abandonment of the gospel? And, uh, and they said various things. Sometimes there was clearly enough substance to what they were reflecting on that I said, you know, it would be very helpful to me if you're willing, uh, if we could have a phone conversation, because I'd like to be able to explore this further. I, I don't see the world the way that you do, and I don't actually see the gospel the way that you do. So it's really important to me that I am listening to people who are who are like me claiming a faithfulness to 
the Bible and to the God that we worship, but coming out with radically different conclusions than the ones that I would reach. So that began a series of conversations that went on for, um, I would say probably a year um, with people who I had multiple conversations with. Some I just had one or two conversations with them. And, and it was really meaningful and very disturbing to, uh, to listen to the narratives, which really were fundamentally, like are prone for all of us, the narratives of our own crisis and not an ability to see um, to see beyond that. And that has to be as true of me as it is of anyone else. So I'm not claiming immunity to that in the least. Um, but I think then the question of, of, is there hope in this? Where is the dignity? This, I think obviously, as you would believe too, the core of that has to do with the richness of our understanding of the evangel. If, if the evangel is not the source of what you're describing, not in that kind of band-aid-like way, not that gospel that just says, well, here's a little gospel that will help Lear on the heath, but really this much richer, complex, deep, profound, um, passion, passionate, the passion of God uh, defined reality of love in suffering, in weakness, in, in um, disempowerment, in self-inflicted suffering, in um, inter- relational abuse inside families and, and beyond. If, if our gospel isn't a big enough gospel for all those things, then I don't know that we do really have any hope. Um, if it's just as it were, someone needed to come along on the Heath and share some quote, good news with, uh, with Lear. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, that's, that's just really not even imaginable. It's not even a thought that's ever occurred to me until this moment. But um, if that was to have happened, uh, which is actually the way the voice of evangelicalism strikes currently in our culture, uh, then no wonder people are absolutely repelled by it. They are repelled. And so I think the question is, where is the hope? Um, I think it's listening. I think it's believing that that in that intersection, uh, relationally, institutionally, whatever it might be, there's a capacity um, to, to invite people into a hearing of good news that is not reductionist, that's not narrow, that's not self-serving, that's not politicized, that, is, um, that holds the greatest crises with the, with the deepest um, compassion and, and empathy, but also power to heal and renew and remake. Um, this is, it's in that spirit that I have said often in various settings in recent years, it is really a hope for revival, not as a religious um, meeting. I don't mean revival in that way. I mean the work of the spirit of God freshly breaking into people's lives. And church historians have always measured genuine revival by two things personal transformation and social transformation. And if it's just about personal transformation, it's not considered a revival historically. It has to actually show up in public space that is seeking the common good, which is the place out of which a great deal of the first and second great awakenings, so-called, were, were works of revival that, yes, were inwardly transformative, relationally transformative, and socially transformative. So... To, but that requires a big gospel. That's not just the gospel of 
sign on for Jesus forgiving my sins. I, I need and desperately want Jesus to forgive my sins. Yeah. That's just not the, the whole gospel. And it's the whole gospel. And I think that's where there's hope. So the reason I want to come back again and again to the evangel is to say, okay, I want to use a part of the word evangelical that I consider to be the absolute central part of it, which is really the evangel itself. Is there hope in that? Yes. Am I going to lift up that hope? Yes. Am I going to try to do it personally, interpersonally, pastorally, theologically, socially, politically? Yes, 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 yes to all those. And, and it will all manifest itself in a way, I hope, that is actually principally about the character of God, not principally about my social, political, racial, gender identity. Um, it's, it's really about that. And in that, to me, um, there is actually genuine hope but it is like beginning again, which is back to the humility and brokenness part. It's, it's hearing again, as though for the first time, uh, to quote Yates. So it's, it's, um, that's, the, that's the vocation, I think, of God's people in the world. And one of the things I'm most excited about, about Fuller is that because we're now serving not only students, that is people who want degrees, but learners, that is people who don't want degrees, but want, serious uh, theological uh, opportunities, biblically and, and psychologically and otherwise, to do some serious reflective work as they grow as, as followers of Christ. That array, that it's both for specialized learners academically who want and need a degree, and the world of Christians who just need serious opportunities for theological and biblical reflection, that is our audience, and that's what we're trying to serve. And um, that will be self-selected in many cases, and it will certainly, in most cases, be self-paid for rather than institutionally paid for, because Fuller doesn't have the gargantuan endowment that some institutions have. But I think it is our institutional vocation, and holding that all together is not meant to say, let's blow out Fuller and become uh, so big that we are nothing but just wideness. Um, instead, how do we actually... Um, hold forth a world-encompassing gospel, a holistic, um, thriving, embodied, contextualized gospel. Amen. Um, I have taken all of your time and more. Um, would you mind, I know it's just a podcast, but we're just talking about Jesus is Lord and the need for the Spirit. Would you mind even just closing us with a prayer? Sure. Oh, good God, who knows and loves us, who sees us in our inner and public lives, who knows us through and through, who knows that we are Lear and other characters in that play. It has always been so. It is so today. We are broken. We're confused. We're lost. We're disoriented. We're overwhelmed and challenged by things at so many different levels from so many different directions. And yet it is because we come to you as the one who holds all reality, who holds all things together, who is the hope of the world and the hope of our own lives. It's to you we come laying all that we've just discussed before you, crying out to you for your revival, that deep transformative work in us and around us that really only you can do. We are broken. We are also wanting to be available. 
to be used by you, to be changed by you, to be agents, uh, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, of light and salt in the world, awakening of, of a vibrant, thriving Christian imagination that's centered not in personal or tribal power, but in the work and astonishing faithfulness of a God of relentless love and justice. So I thank you for David, for his ministry, for all that he's uh, been called to, to lead. I thank you for his role as a pastor and his role as a teacher, professor. I thank you for his scholarship. I thank you for his pastoral heart. I thank you for the fact that he's grounded in your love in a way that uh, has always been one of the most um, profound parts of who he is and my own experience and the experience of others. And yet he also uh, has been blessed with the capacity uh, intellectually and otherwise to reach um, out with that centeredness in ways that will leave its mark. May it be so, not for David's sake, but for the sake of, of the gospel and its fullness. We pray for Fuller, for all the things that an institution like Fuller and other such uh, institutions are trying to do, bless, encourage, guide, protect, defend, but also challenge, disrupt, reorder us so that we might be uh, more the people and the institution that you would want us to be. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for each person who's listening to, the, to it. And we pray for your blessing on them as well. Whatever the places are of need, brokenness, concern, fear, hope, joy, delight, creativity, or do uh, your good work and do it in abundance, we pray. For their sake and for the sake of all of those that they will touch, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks, David. It's been a privilege. I love this. Yeah, I love that. I love that we could just chat in your home somehow. I mean, it's just such a yes, garage. and in your garage. <laughs> uh, if at all possible, let's not make this the last time. Yes, absolutely. Okay, David. Thanks so much. Thank God you. God bless. God bless. Bye. Bye. That's our time, my friends. If you would like to support the podcast, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And if you would like even more content and to become a patron of the podcast, head on over to FromBabylonWithLove.com, click on Newsletter, and sign up there. Until then, many thanks to producer Zach Leach for all the twists and turns and to Lonesome and Muddy, the only house band that'll survive the apocalypse. This has been From Babylon with Love.